Hello friends and welcome to the podcast Coffee and Books. I'm your host, my name is Scott, and welcome to another glorious episode of podcasting. I hope all of you are doing well today. Uh, So today we're going to talk about Little Women Part 2, Book 2, also known as Good Wives. But before we get into it, I just want to reiterate some more social media links. Hope all of you are again doing well. I hope to hear from you. we have quite a few people listening now, so we're very glad that you're here. Thank you again. Uh, so we have people from Australia, Norway, um, India, Russia, all over the world. So thank you again for listening to the podcast. Uh, also reading my blog, Coffee and Books. And the blog is called I Like Big Books and I Cannot Lie. Uh, so yeah, let's get into it. Uh, the Coffee and Books link uh, you know, podcast will be linked to my word blog, so hopefully you found it through the here. Um, you can listen on all major platforms, Spotify, Google, Android users. Uh, they're available across six major platforms. I hope to get it on Apple Podcasts soon. Um, I don't quite think it's ready for that yet. Now, having said all that, let's go into Little Women Part 2, which was originally published in 1869 by Louisa May Alcott one of the great feminine writers of the 1800s, a women's rights advocate. Uh, She fought tirelessly, wrote uh, one of the great American novels, Little Women, which we're going to talk about today. So before we go any further than this, I want to say if you haven't heard part one, you're going to definitely need to listen to part one. And also part two, you're going to need to understand that this is going to contain spoilers. So if you want to go from the beginning you got to read probably the book first, or at the very least know that I'm going to spoil it for you. And two, you're going to have to understand that this is a two-part episode, so you might want to start with part one, which came out a little bit of time ago. Okay, now let's get into it, the good stuff. So, as I said, initially it was published as two separate books, Little Women and Good Wives. Good Wives follows the tales of the four main characters, Joe, Amy, Beth, and uh, let's see, Meg, and with those four characters, uh, we talk about their lives. And in Good Wives, they face a lot more trying times than they did as a child. Although, part one was great, and when we last left off was when Meg got married. Um, You know, they all faced trials and tribulations as children, but, you know, the biggest thing that happened was, of course, as we all know, Beth getting scarlet fever, uh, you know, people falling through the ice, you know, all sorts of danger kind of awaited them as children, but now we're going to go into the dangers of being an adult. Okay, so as I said, each of the four main female characters faces quite a bit of uh, challenge. They have to each solve their own crises. So let's start with uh, Meg first. Meg, just as we said, was married in a lot, at the end of the last novel. She's working hard, she has two children. And she's so consumed by the life of her children, she begins to neglect her husband. Also, there's different scenes in which there's struggle, of course, whatever most domestic struggles begin with, which is money. Uh, Meg has, you know, an interest in, you know, competing with the rich, keeping up with the Joneses. And although she knows that she's poor and is married to a poor man who's trying to make an honest living, she would rather spend her money frivolously on things. And so this catches up to her as her husband trusts her completely with the finances. 
and then one day finds that she has spent all of her money on a nice silk cloth which is to be made into a dress. And as a result, the husband has to give up wearing a winter coat, which is a big deal back in the day, especially in you know Massachusetts. So I just want to say that uh, I think Meg learned her lesson, but overall it took some time you know, to repair her marriage. I mean, she had to sell you know, the things that mattered most to her, like the silk cloth. Uh, you know, she realized she could not compete with finances and that the only way she would ever be happy is if she welcomes her husband into her home with her children. And so her husband and her, like I said, they quarreled a little bit throughout the later stage of the novel, but then they realized they have this moment where they realized the only way they could do this and manage the children is if they work together as a team. A true husband and wife analogy. Okay, so that's Meg's whole deal throughout most of the story. Um, so number two, and this is again, spoiler, um, is Beth. Now Beth is confronted with the prospect that her family is splitting apart. They're no longer, you know, mom, dad, and you know, her and three sisters. It's they're moving out. They're moving on with their lives. And Beth has explicitly stated she did not, you know, see herself growing up to a ripe old age. So already there, she's scaring everyone. She, she's weak uh, from her virus, you know, the scarlet fever. She's had all these issues health-wise, and so the family is sort of in denial about the fact that she's sick. So we'll go into this later, but Joe, of course, leaves, and when Joe comes back, she realizes how sick Beth actually is. And Beth is glad because she doesn't have to tell the family. She wants, she never told anyone. She wanted them to kind of realize it on their own because she was afraid of what they might say or do or how they would react to it. So Joe became the guidance for Beth, and Joe is the reason the family stuck it together. Uh, it was through Joe that she worked with the family, the mom and the dad, and got them through their grief, and Joe's own grief, and Meg's grief, and uh, even uh, Amy's grief. They helped them, they all helped each other survive. So uh, the important thing that I'm saying is that Beth unfortunately passes away, um, and as a result, you know, we have this moment towards the end of her life where she's on a beach and she's with Joe and they have that moment that's very special and intimate. And Joe realizes that, you know, Beth is not long for the world. And Beth just wanted to know one thing, which was her life worth living, which of course the obvious answer is yes. Beth was the moral compass of the family. It was Beth that kind of held everyone together. And with her passing, everyone was worried what will happen. But thanks to uh, Joe and Beth naming Joe responsible, it became Joe's mission to be the moral compass of the family. So that kind of passed on. But unfortunately, it was sad that Beth passed away. And as to a cause of death, we're not quite clear. Um, it just says that she passed away peacefully in her sleep. Okay. So now we got to go to Amy. Now, Amy was challenged the most by the old ways. And the reason why I bring up the old ways versus the new is that the old ways in the 1800s was very different, meaning arranged marriages, you married for money and wealth and power. Amy is fighting against the system too, just like the rest of the sisters. Sorry, uh, yes, Amy. Uh, I got confused there for a second. I thought it was Meg. Uh, Amy got... Uh, 
well, how should we say, in a predicament. It was Amy who went overseas based on Aunt, uh, you know, the Ant March, uh, and Flo, her, you know, best friend, decided to take uh, Amy to Europe. And it was in Europe where she went to Rome, she went to Switzerland, she went to Germany, she went all over the world, England, and it was in these places that she realized her dream of being an artist, being visual, was very hard to keep, even though. You know, obviously Amy was very good at what she does. I mean, going to see the best art in the whole world is going to make you feel like you're not good enough. And so it was here that she sort of is on holiday, but she's also learning and growing as a person, developing into the woman. And it was here she meets an old childhood friend who's mentioned earlier in a novel, Fred. Uh, Fred is a grown man who's English, who's wealthy. Um, He is not the best looking fellow, as he's described, but... You know, she's like, I could learn to love this guy. He has a lot of money, a lot of power, and he could make me, you know, what I want to be. So, of course, Fred proposes to her, and it was during this time she has to think about what she wants. Um, Now, of course, we're going to come back to Amy, but we got to first talk about what happened with Joe, sister number four. See, Joe is the most challenged, but everything and she's not challenged by the old ways and in wealth she's not challenged by uh, you know sickness like Beth and she's not challenged by having a husband how Joe's challenged the most is by her love for other people like her love for family and her love for a romantic partner you see in the story Joe and Lori have this moment where you know Lori is completely in love with Joe and he proposes to Joe, and you want Joe to say yes. But Joe does not say yes. In fact, Joe says that she's better off being alone, and she realized after having a conversation with her mother that her and Lori could never be together because their personalities would conflict, they would hate each other, they would ruin their friendship. And that is a very important point to make, that you know she did not feel like she wanted to ever be married. She never thought she would have that. She wanted to help other people. She wanted to, you know, do what Beth was doing for her, but for the whole world. And uh, as a result, Lori becomes dejected, and he goes to Europe, and he meets Amy. And, uh, of course, this is around the time when Beth dies, so Lori and Amy become close, and then they realize that they love each other. Okay, so why did I mention all this before I go into further with Joe? It's because, at this point in the novel... I think that the writer was told to give a happy ending. And when I say happy ending, it means domestic bliss, meaning Joe gets married. And I don't think that was true. As the writer has gone on saying, it is all based on real-life experiences. And Louisa May Alcott actually never married. Uh, You know, she was a big proponent of helping other people and feminist rights, as I've said. And I think that it's fascinating that she was never married, but she had to make Joe married in the story in order to best serve the public interest. In other words, she was told to write an ending. So now let's go back into it. So one thing I was confused is that I did not understand why Lori and Amy could just get together so suddenly. Like I thought, Lori is just replacing Amy with, you know, like... It's a fake Joe. Like, he sees Joe and Amy, and that is what he's settling. He's settling for something he can't have. And Amy, 
knows this. Like, she knows that Lori loved Joe her entire life, so it's not a surprise. Um, you know, they, they have this moment later on where she says, my last jealous streak flew away, and I, you know, fell madly in love with Lori, and we had children of her own. And yes, you know, it's fantastic that they did that. But again, Lori, you know, upset me here. Because he goes to Europe, he's gallivanting, he's gambling, he's spending all of his money, he's not in a good state of mind. And then he meets, you know, Amy and all of a sudden everything's better. Like, I just don't believe someone could get over that. Now, I know the novel takes place over years and time, um, and that, you know, he probably grew as a person. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, so to speak. But, I mean, come on. Like, how does he just magically get over it? And Amy is just magically okay with that. Okay? Now let's get into Joe's whole dilemma, because that was, you know, that was not something I didn't like, but I, at least I understood why they did it. You know, they had to make Lori have a happy ending, and Amy have a happy ending somehow. But this is the part of the novel I don't understand at all, and again, I want to stress that I think this is because the writer was trying to please the publishers. So, long story short, Joe, realizing how much he dejected Lori, runs away. She basically goes to New York to work in a friend's boarding house, like a friend of her mom's. And at this boarding house, she meets Professor Bayer, a German immigrant who is a twice her age, who's, you know, basically working with children and teaching them and making them learn to love everything. And it was at this moment that Joe realized that she had the love for someone else, and it was this guy. And that's what pisses me off, is that she spent the whole novel explaining about how I don't want to be involved with anyone. I'm going to be alone forever. I'm going to be the spinster that I want to be. And then all of a sudden, in her 20s, about 25, she meets this guy, and she decides, that's it. That's my way into a happy life. My life didn't turn out quite how I imagined it, but at least that there's this guy here, and he can see me through. But of course, you know, it doesn't happen that way, as all great romance novels say. You know, she goes and speaks to him, and they learn to love one another, and then she realizes she has to go home. And of course, she tells, you know, Mr. Bear, Professor Bear, you know, come and visit me. And of course, Lori comes home, and he knows all about Lori, but, you know, what he doesn't know is that Lori's moved on to Amy, and then they have this awkward moment where he's in town, you know, pretending to be on business, and that's the moment where Joe and him meet in the city street and they look at each other and they confess their love for one another and they get married and they have kids and then the aunt dies and then voila, you have Joe's dream coming true where she is able to help other people through her aunt's wealth. And well, I think maybe her, you know, a real life relative died and left her money, you know, I don't think that this is exactly the ending she had in mind when writing this book. And I think it's terrible that at the time people said you have to make Joe fall in love with a man in order to be happy because maybe that's just the attitudes of the time. Uh, you know, it was written a long time ago, but I felt like that this novel did not do it justice. You know, like the, the proper ending should have been Joe got the money anyway. Joe founded a house to take care of her extended family, meaning she took care of poor children across the world. And instead, we are kind of left with this half notion of, yes, it's half true, but also she married and had kids of her own, which did not happen. 
And so all of that basically is upsetting to me. But I do like how, and I think I want to stress this point, that, you know, I think the writer, uh, you know, specifically had her marry a German immigrant because it would upset the viewers. I think this was sort of like a shock, uh, mainly because, as I said, we, we talked about how Joe wasn't supposed to, you know, marry in the first place, but I think that at the time, the anti-sentiment, if you remember, in the 1800s, uh, America was against Germans. Waves and waves and waves of German immigrants were coming to the United States, and people were saying how barbaric this was. You know, first you had the Irish immigrants, and now you have the German immigrants. You know, and while the Germans were at least mostly middle class, I think the point that the story is making is that, you know, the writer chose the most, you know, un-American person possible, a German immigrant, and made him into the success story that all Americans want to be, you know, where they live a happy life, they get to, you know, they get to, you know, work by their bootstraps and they make a dream come true. You know, in this case, this guy, he did. He got to do what he always wanted to do, and his promise was in America. You know, it's, it just proves the point of the American dream is what I guess they're trying to go for here. Uh, but anyway, uh, I just thought that that was a nice, thinly veiled revenge against the publishers because they probably did not like that sentiment. Now, after all this, I just want to say I enjoyed the book immensely, even if I didn't agree with the ending. It doesn't mean that I didn't have fun reading it. It was a very, very long book. I remember these were two individual books jammed together to make one giant book that was published. And while it's kept me very, very busy, I'm very glad that I moved on to the next topic. Uh, next week's topic is going to be called Bitter Brew. is by William Nodsletter, who, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is a biographer who writes about the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. You know, this is the history of Anheuser-Busch, and that is worth uh, a lot, in my opinion, especially because I grew up in St. Louis, and I grew up all around Anheuser-Busch products, and people don't understand the love that St. Louisans especially have for the, you know, Bush family, but most importantly, we'll get into that next, next time, but I just want to say that's next week's episode. I hope you enjoyed this week, and remember... If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Please tell your friends about it. Uh, you know, I appreciate any work that you guys put into sharing this because it obviously gets it to a wider audience. Um, I know that there are people who are listening, but the more people we get to listen, the better it is. Uh, the more we can have friends join in on it. Uh, also, if you want to leave me a voicemail on Anchor FM, you can do that. Um, as my buddy Regis has been doing. Again, appreciate that. And uh, anything else you guys want to talk about with me, let me know. I'm thinking about adding uh, beer tasting into the mix as well. So we have coffee and we have books, but maybe, you know, since I don't get the coffee except for maybe once a month from a new place, why don't we try doing something else in between, like tasting a, a new beer? You know, there's a lot of beers out there, and, you know, this Anheuser-Busch thing got me thinking, maybe it'd be a good idea to try different beers and talk about the tastes, and maybe their history as well. So, uh, anyway, of course, only drink if you're over 21. Anyway, if you guys have any uh, questions for me, drop me a line. You can always email me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, 
Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N, 16 at yahoo.com. And of course, you can find me on WordPress, um, and you can leave a comment there, or you can leave a comment on Spotify, or wherever it is that you want to leave a comment. I will read it. Thank you, and have a great day.